0: Good morning church. Uh, My name is Andy Hall and I have the privilege of um, preaching God's word this morning and um, I'm excited about that. I appreciate the opportunity. The elder has given me the opportunity to do so. And so we're going to be in Romans chapter 5, continuing our study through Romans chapter 5 if you've been with us. And we'll be in verses chapter five verses one through eleven so i'm I'm not sure whether that has already been read or not. I know with the video it, it uh, uh anyways I'm going to read the the verses and uh then we'll get into our text this morning so if you would if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up if you're already if not already there and uh let's uh let's begin with what Paul says Romans chapter five verse 1 through uh, one through 11. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope in the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our sufferings produces endurance, and our endurance produces character, And character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we are still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps one would uh, for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his by the death of His Son, much more, now that we have been reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let me pray for us. Father God, we come before you this morning and um, we're thankful that we're able to gather as your people, whether it's through a video or whether it's um, in an outdoor gathering sense, that we're able as your people to gather under your word, to listen to your word. and So we ask that by your spirit you would come, that you would teach us, that you would uh, illumine, illumine our minds, that we might uh, be able to... To hear and to see and to comprehend what your word is saying to us. That you would awaken our hearts and our affections for you through your word. Help us see the magnitude of what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. That through this justification that you have done. That we might begin to see the benefits and the consequences of of how that intersects our everyday life. Help us this morning, even if it's just a little bit, help us to begin to see what justification brings to us. That it's not some lofty theological concept, but it has real meaning. It, it meets us where we are and it's important for us to to begin to grasp and to live in light of what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. And so God, we ask that you would come, that you would be our teacher by your spirit, through your word, that you would lay us bare and that you would breathe life into us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, like I said, we've been in the study of uh, in the book of Romans, kind of going through uh, verse by verse, uh, chapter by chapter. And now we have entered into Romans chapter five. And Romans chapter five uh, begins, um, uh, kind of makes a turn. And we'll talk about this a little bit more in a moment. But chapter five through chapter eight, Paul really begins to unpack the significance of justification. And so if you remember in chapters 1 through chapters 4, Paul has really been laying out the case that all of us, without exception, have been given this life by God. And we have chosen to use this life that, that God has given to us. We have chosen to use it not in submission to him, but in rebellion to him in defiance to him and as a result of our sin because we have chosen to turn away from God to worship the creation rather than the creator that we are rightly under the the righteous judgment of God the wrath of God and that all of us without exception are guilty and no one is able to save themselves but then we begin to see towards the middle of Romans chapter 3 all the way through chapter 4 that God, by His grace and His infinite kindness towards us, rather than um, dismissing us, rather than rejecting us and destroying us, He pursues us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes and lives the perfect life that we should live but we have not in order that we might receive His righteousness and be declared righteous. He dies on the death for our sin, in our place, for our rebellion. And by his life and his death, we receive forgiveness. And he rises again from the dead in order to reconcile us back to God, to give us the resurrected life that is his. We have received his life, empowered by the Spirit of God, and we now have victory over Satan, sin, death, and hell, and so that brings us all the way up to Romans chapter five, and Paul here takes a turn. He begins to show us here how this truth, particularly the justification of God, how this truth intersects with our everyday life. In other words, uh, the overflow, or um, or the benefit, or the consequence of uh, of being justified by faith through Jesus Christ, radically rewrites our story changes our perspective and guarantees God's love for us so those are the three things that I want us to kind of dive into a little bit this morning as we as we think about this text how God rewrites our story through justification how God uh, changes our perspective because of justification and how God guarantees his love for us because of justification and so if you would look with me in verses one and two, here we see uh, really throughout this whole passage, but here in, in uh, Paul encapsulates here for us um, how being justified by faith intersecting our daily life, God rewrites our story uh, through Jesus. God is telling a better story about our past and about our present and about our future. Think, think about this with me for just a moment. Um, just how this works in our everyday life. Uh, m- uh, most of us think about life, uh, kind of along a timeline, right? We think about our past, our present, and our future. Uh, now most of us come to our, our past, our present, our future differently. Um, we have different backgrounds. We have different experiences. So there, there are those differences, um, that, that, Create lenses by which we understand our past, our present, and our future. Now, for most of us, if you take the, if you take Jesus out of our narrative, most of us, when we think about our past or we look at our past, uh, it's usually marked with, with guilt, with, uh, regret, with shame, with, um, uh, with missed opportunities. We, we tend to focus uh, on the worst things that we have done. We tend to think about the, the things that have been done to us, particularly negatively, those things that have been done to us. We think about what, what, uh, we wish we would have done better. Uh, and then what we end up, what we end up doing is we take those past experiences that we have, typically negative experiences that we have, uh, and we bring this broken experience of our past into our, our present. And what this ends up doing is it compounds, it, it fuels our shame, our guilt, our hurts, and our regret. And it leaves us in a place of disappointment and discontentment. And then this begins to fuel and fill our hearts, our minds with fear and anxiety about our future. Because after all, if, if my, if what I have experienced in the past if if it's this negative uh, experiences that I've had in the past, then why would I expect anything different for the future? Now, think about how this just drills down into our everyday life. I, I would imagine, if you're like me, I would imagine that there are times, maybe often, maybe last night, that you laid your head down on the pillow trying to fall asleep and you're stressed out about your job or you're stressed out about... Uh, You're worried about money or or you're unsure about some relationship. Maybe you're sitting there wondering about a post that you saw on social media and you're thinking, I wonder if that was directed uh, towards me. Maybe you're concerned with school starting back um, in the midst of a pandemic. And so there's some fear and trepidation and uncertainties about what does that look like? Uh, And so what we tend to happen in in those moments is that we begin to go to the worst case scenarios and these things begin to unfold and play out in our mind. And so what Paul is doing throughout these verses and particularly verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5, what he is saying is that when the grace of Jesus intersects our life, it radically transforms our past, our present and our future. God rewrites our story. God rewrites our past. So no matter what you have done or what has been done to you, our past is no longer marked by guilt, shame, and regret. But instead it is now marked by righteousness and reconciliation. Look at verses one, or verse one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we've seen that word justified several times throughout, uh, the first four chapters of Romans. It's, it's, it's a word that's tightly close, tightly associated, very closely associated with the, with the word righteousness. What justified or justification means is that we have been given a right standing with God. And so as a result of this, in verse 1, we have peace with God. Now imagine this this term, peace with God, imagine it within terms of two, two armies uh, striking a peace agreement with one another. In other words, before God justifies us, we're in the position of war. Romans chapter 1 verses 18 through 320 plays this out. It shows us that we are in active rebellion against the king of creation and therefore we are under his wrath. And so when Paul is speaking here of this term peace with God, he's not speaking of a subjective feeling of peace. Rather, he's talking about this objective reality that peace has been accomplished through Jesus Christ. Through the gift of His righteousness, through the gift of His sacrificial atoning death, through the gift of His victorious resurrection, we have been given this gift of forgiveness and peace with God through faith in Christ. We see this... um, worded differently, but very similar in, in verse 10. So look down in verse 10. Here it says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled. Now that term reconciled is very closely associated with peace. It means to become friends. It, uh, we were once enemies, now we're friends. So it kind of has that idea to it, right? So for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. S- so what does that mean? It means that through Jesus, all of our sin, shame, regret, all of our guiltiness, all of our rebellion has been paid for and covered. Because by grace, through faith in the life and death of Jesus, God has saved us from the penalty of our sin. And as a result of this, we are no longer enemies of God. But God has made us his friends. Now, guilt and shame, regret, uh, missed opportunities might be the lens that you you keep seeing yourself through. It, It might be the lens that others want to see you through. But it is not the lens by which God sees you. It's not the lens by which God sees you. Through Jesus you have been justified And you have peace with God This means that your guilt is paid for Your shame is covered Your regrets are redeemed You are restored into a right relationship with God And you are reconciled to Him as His friend And you have received all of the riches and benefits of that relationship So this is how God Uh, heals our past this is how he rewrites our past but he also rewrites our present look at verse 2 through him you have also obtained which think about that for a minute if we have obtained something it means that we didn't previously have it but now we do so through him, through Jesus you have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which you stand in other words, we have been given access to God in which we receive the benefits of God's grace daily. I, I think this is an area that uh, for most of us, we struggle to live in light of this in in an everyday, in everyday life. If you're like me, it's easy to, th- to think about uh, my past mistakes. It's easy to think about... Where I've gone wrong or what I have not done well, it's easy for these kinds of things, these 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 bro- my broken past, our broken past, to begin to define us, uh, to have um, massive consequences—not consequences, but uh, very influential on what we are currently doing and how we're currently reacting to any given situation and so what we find ourselves doing is trying really really hard to fix ourselves but by with all of this doing it makes it very very hard for us to rest in the perfect performance of Jesus for us rather than spending time with Jesus and drawing from him of his abundant grace i tend to try to perform or to hide or even pretend by projecting my false self and that is exhausting. Think about it. Think about that in your own life. That is exhausting. But what Paul is reminding us of here is that through Jesus, we have been given this daily uh, grace, this daily gift of access to God. That through him, through Jesus, we have been set free from our past. And we have all the resources and the power that we need to live In light of that, in our present. So how do we access this? How do we, how do we access this grace, this, this grace in which we stand? Well, it's not by doing more. It's not by working harder. It's simply by being with God. It's by entering into His presence. Like a dignitary, a king of some sort, you have access to come into the presence of God. That's how, that's how we that's how we access this. It's by just being with him. So that the banner that flies over our life every day is a banner of walking out and living in continuous grace, set free from our past, empowered for our presence. I think this is what Paul is getting at when he's praying in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. When he's... I think what he's asking is he wants us as we walk out in God's daily grace to us that we might begin to know and to understand and to comprehend what it is to be strengthened, as he says, with power through God's spirit in the inner being. This is an area that I I want to grow more deeply in awareness of God's ever-present kindness towards me so that my heart will be a reflection of a of a heart that is joyfully dependent upon Him in, in the everyday circumstances of life. Not dependent upon me, but dependent upon Him, joyfully dependent upon Him. I want to grow in awareness of this. God rewrites our past. He rewrites our present and He rewrites our future. Look again in verse two, Paul says the second part of that verse, and we rejoice in hope in the glory of God. Now, hope, uh, it, hope in our culture carries more of a meaning of, uh, a wishful desire with no certainty. That's kind of the idea behind it. It's, um, we say things like, I, I, I wish that it would happen or I hope that it happens, but we're not certain that it will. It'd be like saying, I hope somebody gives me a million dollars. I mean, that would be great. I don't think it's going to happen, or at least I don't know if it's going to happen. But that's not how the Bible understands the term hope. That's not the meaning of this word hope that we see in this text. In this verse, hope means an unwavering certainty, an unwavering certainty. It's not based on our circumstances, but it's based on the object of our faith. It's an unwavering certainty based on the unwavering character of God. This is why Paul is able to say in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, I am certain of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So when Paul here says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, he is talking about a joyous certainty that we will share in God's future glory. Uh, Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 8, verse 17. He says that we will be glorified with Him. And so we, because we have been justified by faith through grace... In the Lord Jesus Christ, we can look to the future with certainty, not with fear and anxiety, but we can face tomorrow and the next day and look way beyond into the future with certainty and not fear and anxiety, knowing that those things that align with the heart of God and glorify him, they will happen. They will happen. So biblical hope is not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Because God brings to completion those things that bring him glory. And so when we live in light of this better story, it changes our perspective about our present circumstances. And it even changes our perspective about the suffering that we are currently enduring. Look at verse 3. Paul begins this in verse 3. He says, Not only this, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and the access to which we have to God, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Now, that's, that seems a little strange that Paul says that, so what, what is he saying here? Notice here in the verse that he says we rejoice in suffering. He's not saying that we look, we look forward to suffering or that suffering somehow Becomes like this badge of honor for us. But what he is saying is that God, in our sufferings, gives the gift of His presence. That even in the worst of circumstances, there is a deep joy in God. Not because of our circumstances or our sufferings, but through our sufferings, we are able to experience the presence of the goodness of God in a way that we otherwise would not be able to experience. Tim Keller picks up on this, and he says it this way. He says, Christians, however, rejoice in suffering. That means that there is no joy in the actual troubles themselves, God hates pain and troubles of the of this life, and so should we. Rather, a Christian knows that suffering will bring that what suffering will, will have is a beneficial results. A Christian is not a stoic who faces suffering just by gritting their teeth. Christians look through the sufferings to their certainties they rest in the knowledge that troubles will only increase their enjoyment and appreciation of those certainties you see paul is explaining in this, in these verses what those certainties are that that com- that through suffering there's this chain reaction that happens Look what he says, starting in verse 3. Knowing that our sufferings produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character hope, and hope will not put us to shame. You see, through our suffering, God is producing in us an ability to see who and what matters. He is producing this weightiness. That my joy is not contingent upon my uncontrollable circumstances, but my joy is found in God, who is faithful regardless of my circumstances. Which then produces this unwavering certainty. That through access to God, we know the character of the one who does actually control our circumstances. And even in the most difficult circumstances, there is hope. There is this unwavering certainty. Because this hope is grounded in the unwavering goodness of God. But how can we be certain of this? How can we be certain that this hope, in verse 5, will not put us to shame? Because God guarantees His love for us. Verse 5-11. through Now, Paul gives us two ways that God guarantees his love for us. First is subjective, meaning that it's how we experience his love. And second is objective, meaning how we can know his love. So subjectively, he says that we experience God's love for us because of the Holy Spirit in us. Verse 5, hope does not put us to shame. Here's why. Because we because the love of God has poured has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I think about this this um, you go hiking. And you spent all day hiking and you've run out of water. And so it's really hot. You've been sweating a lot. Your mouth is just cotton dry. Uh, you're beginning to get dehydrated. You finally make yourself way back to the car. You get to a restaurant or something and you're standing in line and you're just dying of thirst. And all you can do while you're standing in line as you're waiting for them to fill up your, your cup with water, all you can think about in that moment is I, that, that cup can't. Cannot get to my mouth. That water can't get to my mouth quick enough. I wonder if you've ever had that kind of experience before. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure you have. You, you have an idea of what I'm talking about. This, just this longing, like you can't wait. It can't get to you fast enough to quench that thirst that you have deep within you. I think, in some ways, that's how we feel about love. We don't admit it. But I think we're all desperate for it. Even when we pretend like like it's not that important to us because we don't want to get hurt or uh, we don't want to admit um, how much it, it hurts not to be loved. But deep down, all of us are desperate to belong. All of us are desperate to be loved. God wants us to experience His love. So He has graciously poured out His love into our hearts by The Spirit of God. And it's the Spirit of God who bears witness with our Spirit that we indeed belong to God. But how do we know that God truly loves us? I mean, what what if you say, I don't feel that kind of love of God in my heart by the Spirit of God. I I look inside of me and it's just, it's just not there. I, I don't, I don't, I don't feel it. I don't feel that it's there. So, so what am I supposed to do with that? I mean, is is the love of God real? I mean, if do we just kind of tell ourselves this? Is is it more of an illusion? What what is what am I supposed to do with this? I think Paul understands how fickle our hearts really are, and so he tells us he wants to tell us something more about God's love for us. So in verses six through eleven, we see how he answers this question: How do we know God's love for us is real? And he says here that we're to look to what God has done for us or for you. We're so prone to look to ourselves or to look to our circumstances or to look to others rather than looking to Jesus. God's love for you is not an illusion. It is an objective reality demonstrated in history through Jesus Christ. So not only do we subjectively experience God's love for us because of the Holy Spirit in us, but we know God's love for us because Jesus died for us. Now, real quickly, as we as we kind of come into the close here, um, three aspects of God's love for us that we can objectively know. First of all, God shows us his love. At the heart of this section, we see Jesus dying for us, not because it's our because of our best or because we deserve it, but because of our worst. Here's what I mean. Notice here in these verses, six through 11, who God, who Jesus dies for. In verse six, Jesus dies for the weak or the powerless, those who are morally incapable uh, to save themselves. Verse 6, again, Jesus dies for the ungodly. The ungodly are those who reject God's reign and rule for their life. They're they're those who say to God, I know better, I will decide what is right and wrong. This is my life, I will do what I want to do. So he dies for the weak, he dies for the powerless, the ungodly. Verse 8, Jesus dies for the sinners, those who believe a lie about God. They exchange the glory of God for the glory of man. Those who think and feel and act in any way that is not like God or in submission to what God says. And then in verse 10, Jesus dies for his enemies. Those who hate him, despise him, who detest and abhor him. And the Bible tells all of us very clearly that we all are enemies of God. And so you see the descriptions of who Jesus died for and what it's meant to do is help you see the magnitude of God's love for you. Even when Jesus saw us at our worst, he did not abandon us, but rather he went to the cross for us. Jesus didn't die for good people. He died for those who hated him. He took the initiative and he demonstrated his love for us by dying for us while we were his enemies. I think one reason why it's so hard for us to accept this is because nobody treats us this way. Think about it. Nobody treats us this way. Most of us grew up in an environment that when we failed, uh, we, were, uh, we were punished, obviously, to various dis- degrees. And when we did well, we were rewarded, again, to various degrees. I mean, this is how the world works, whether you're at school or where you're on the job or just with other people. When they see the best in us, they reward us and they love us. But when they see the worst in us, they 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 tend to abandon us and hurt us. But this is where Jesus is Jesus is radically different in the way that he treats us. Verse 7 says, One will scarcely die for the righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, God's love is radically different. When Jesus saw the worst in us, he didn't abandon us, but he went to the cross for us. So not only does God show us his love, but I think these verses show us more than that. The verses also show us that God actively saves us by his love. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus Jesus didn't merely die to make salvation possible, just hoping without any certainty that we would be saved. Rather, he actually saves us by his love. In other words, God won us by persuading us of his love. He captivated and kept us by his love. He redeemed us and reconciled us to himself through his love. It's not just a love that is demonstrated, it's an effectual love. He captures us and brings us to God. That's what his love does. In the death of Jesus, there is a saving love. Christ died to win salvation. It's a compelling love. It's an effectual love. It's a drawing love. So God shows us his love. He actively saves us by his love and he also secures our future with his love. We see this in verse nine and 10, that God captures, that God captures us by his love while we're enemies and by that same love, he keeps us and he will not let us go. Notice when we read these verses that Paul is making an argument from greater to lesser. Verse 9 he says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his love, by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. In other words, since God captured us by his love while we were his enemies, then certainly by that same love he will keep us and will not let us go. Again, Paul builds on that in verse 10. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled, made friends with God. We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we've been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Again, since God captured us by His love while we were yet His enemies, and has made us His friends, then certainly, by that same love, He will not abandon His friends. So here's the question. Will God ever stop loving those who are in Christ Jesus? The answer is no. But as you know, as well as I, the world and our flesh wants to tell us something different, doesn't it? It wants to tell us that God doesn't love us. It it wants to tell us that if we don't walk the line, then we will lose God's love. That deep down you're just not enough. You just haven't done enough. But that's the lie. Because God has shown us his love. He saves us by his love. And secures us with his love. Therefore, by the same measure in which his love captures us, in that same measure of his love, he keeps us me say that again therefore by the same measure in which his love captures us is the same measure that his love keeps us and it is in this hope this unwavering certainty that does not put us to shame but creates in us this deep joy in god which is exactly how this text ends in verse 11 more than that We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We don't rejoice because we have to. We don't rejoice because we're commanded to. We don't rejoice because we're supposed to. We rejoice because we're filled with God's love. Let's pray. Father, we do rejoice in your love. The love in which you have loved us that you planned before the foundations of the world. We praise you because you have you have demonstrated this love for us in the cross of Jesus and you have effectively applied it to our heart by the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, when we doubt this love, would you turn our eyes to the cross? Would you stir up within us this deep rejoicing because we have had we have the promise that you love us and that you will never abandon us and that you will never let us go that we are loved now and we are loved forever it's in jesus name we pray amen